Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, October 16, 2015. This is episode 1662 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Friday, it's time for the expert council calls on Friday, 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 the monster show of the week. I have... Uh, Eight, uh, eight responses from expert council members for, for you guys this week. Uh, f- some folks you haven't heard from in quite a while, including uh, one of the audience's true favorites, Erica Strauss. We've got a, a response to a question on making fermented mustard from her, which I'm very interested in hearing myself. I haven't actually had time to listen to it yet, but I'm sure it'll be great. I was just talking to people at the last TSP event and saying I really want to learn how to make you know fermented mustards when we were making some other fermented food, so that'll be cool. A lot of other really great stuff, and uh, we'll have all that for you in a minute. Let's go ahead first take care of our sponsors they do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you monday through friday five days a week Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills, and one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what, just, just stick with us. And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? 
If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49 and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year 1662. I have the Act of Uniformity Produces Political Correctness for Religion. And uh, say bye-bye to the dodo birds and the Indians. Of course, the year is 1662 because it is the year of the episode. These are both from the awesome Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com, where if you join over there at TSPWiki, you can help us build out the largest self-sufficiency and self-reliance and historical encyclopedia on the web. Uh, there's even videos to show you how to do it, so check it out today, TSPWiki.com. Now, we're going to do say bye-bye to the dodo birds and the Indians. No one has realized it yet, but the last sighting of the dodo bird occurs this year. For your information, you can never know when your last sighting will be until you account for the location of every bird. The dodo only lives on the island of Meredith, east of Madagascar. The island was largely ignored until 1598 when several Dutch ships lost their way in a storm. They landed on the island to care for their sick and injured. They named it Meredith after Maurice, the Prince of Orange, and colonized the island in 1638. The Dutch East India Company requires a report of everything the sailors find, so a description of a large bird with short wings is sent back to the home office. They also make some Darwin-like speculations about how a flightless bird that cannot swim could possibly be found in such a location. The colonists have stocked the island with pigs and goats and are contemplating uh, competing for island resources with the dodo. At some point, probably 1690, the last of the species will go extinct. The Dutch will abandon the island in 1701. It's just too difficult to maintain a colony there. My take by Alex Shrug. Okay, a good book to read about how scientists can calculate approximately when a species goes belly up is Dinosaur in a Haystack by Stephen J. Gold, where the author demonstrates strategically that dinosaurs were killed off right around the time that the big asteroid hit the planet. Some had suggested that the dinosaurs had been dying off well before that time. To prove his case, all he had to do was find one particular dinosaur bone at one specific layer in the strata somewhere on the freaking planet. It's a beautiful demonstration of logic and perseverance. Spoiler alert, he finds it. Regarding the dodo bird's competition for resources on the island, some scientists suggested the dodo bird had already suffered a catastrophic reduction in population prior to the arrival of man, probably due to a storm, but feral pigs were a real environmental problem. In 1662, Virginia and New England feral pigs were eating the natural roots the Indians would use as an emergency food supply on their natural crops. Failed. Thus, the natural agricultural system was slowly collapsing while European monocrop systems were prevailing. Feral pigs were one of the reasons America looked a lot like Europe by the 1700s. Yeah, here's my thoughts on this. So, I think that we can look back at this period of time during this, this expansion in global exploration and, and just see, like, All these guys that were out exploring and stop, you know, because what they would do is they'd like find an island and they chart that island and say, well, this island is now on the charts and it's between A and B, the, it's a, a shipping lane. And then they would just like unload some pigs and goats on that island, just throw them on there. 
And, you know, that way when they came back or when other ships came through, there was a resource there. There was food uh, available. You could get the goats, and they could be used for meat. They could use, be used for milk. And the hogs, of course, were a, a source of meat. And both of them were very tough, resilient animals that could survive in some of the harshest conditions. As long as there was something to graze on and some source of fresh water, these animals would be alive and be there with no one taking care of them. And we just see them like uh, sometimes when we look back through the lens of history as just being a bunch of, you know, environmentalist hating pricks that didn't give a shit about what they damaged. Well, it was really more blind indifference. It, it wasn't malicious. I mean, like, you know, why did these people end up on this island in the first place? Well, they had a problem and they had sick and injured and they went to land to help them. You know, and, and it wasn't like, hey, you know, let's get rid of all these stupid looking birds here. It was a consequence of an action without it being understood. And I think that as sophisticated as we think we are today, there's a lot of things that we're still doing that way, that we're doing massive harm. And it's not because we're malicious. It's because we're indifferent. As long as it doesn't look to be directly bad, we assume that it must not be. As long as it doesn't cause immediate catastrophic results, we assume that it must be okay. Like, I don't know, modern monocropping. Just saying. My take by Jack Spierko. Uh, with that, I want to get into uh, your first topic for today, or your first question for expert counsel today. This question is for Darby Simpson from listener Travis, and he wants Darby to expand on Excel and his comments that Excel never lies, and how he uses Excel in planning, pricing, etc. in his farming enterprise. Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer a question from Travis about Excel. Uh, Travis noted that uh, in a recent podcast episode, I stated that Excel never lies, and he wanted to uh, know if I could elaborate on how we use Excel to uh, find solutions for our farming operation. And, and Travis, we use Excel in a number of ways, and... Uh, when I say Excel never lies, uh, the main thing that I'm, I'm trying to get at is that Excel takes the emotions out of setting prices for your products. You put in all this data and you set up your formulas properly and Excel spits out numbers and it's, it's, it's rational, it's not emotional and it just allows you to take a stark look at the reality of setting prices so that you can run a business and make a living off of it. Um, it really allows you to appropriately charge for your time. And, you know, with farming, you know, in, in no other profession besides farming, um, you know, do we really question paying great wages for a person's work? And adequately evaluating what your time is worth gives you the gumption to uh, stick your guns on, on pricing and earn a good wage from a job that's really hard. And, um, you know, Excel uh, it helps us have a real understanding of, uh, you know, the real cost of real food, and it helps you explain things to customers when you're interacting with them about why something costs what it does, you know, like it helps me explain to a customer why a whole chicken costs $4.75 a pound. Well, I've got $3 a pound in it, and Excel tells me that, and tracking numbers tells me that. And so in order to make like, you know, six to seven bucks on a four-pound chicken, 
I've got to charge appropriately for that and be able to pay myself a decent wage. And that's what I mean by Excel never lies. So some other things that we do with Excel, uh, it's an excellent tool uh, to use for annual uh, cash flow planning. Um, I use Excel to determine like how I'm going to spend, uh, you know, uh, incoming lump sums of cash. Um, it is a great way to, you know, start out your beginning of your season when you've got money coming in for us, like our chicken CSA program. We have all this money coming in March and I'm able to allocate exactly how much money I'm going to use for what and it may not all be going into the chicken enterprise. I might have enough left over where I want to build some fence. Um, and to that end, I always use Excel to perform a cost estimate for fencing projects. And I'm able to like calculate how many rolls of wire I'm going to need, how many fence posts I'm going to need at what cost. And I can estimate you know, how many hours it's going to take a contractor uh, at $1,200 a day for his crew to come in and knock out a section of fence. So... It's a great budgeting tool for things like that. Um, we also use it for uh, projecting year-end income and paying down lines of credit. So as we're now in the middle of October um, and heading towards November, November is like a huge month for us. We have about 20 to 25% of our income uh, flow in to our farm account in roughly 21 days in November. We'll be taking 14 cattle to butcher, uh, about 20 pigs, uh, 100 turkeys, and then our last batch of chickens are uh, going in actually this week. So we've got all this money coming in from this year-end stuff where we're delivering half and whole pigs and half cows and Thanksgiving turkeys and a big chunk of change comes in in a short period of time and we uh, we have a revolving line of credit through uh, farm credit services that we use to kind of cash flow stuff in the summer. We've got to pay that down. We have all this money coming in from from cows, so I allocate money to go buy more cows so that I've got, you know, uh, more products in the pipeline uh, for next year and the year after that and it, it's just such a wonderful tool to do all these things and, and like I said at the beginning it, it takes the emotions out of stuff it doesn't lie to you it keeps you in check it keeps you from going overboard on anything or spending money somewhere where you shouldn't if you'll use it like that and that's how we use it here and I, I tell you it's been a been a great tool and it's uh, something that's really helped me you know kind of uh, track things and and keep on task with reinvesting and allocating funds in the appropriate ways and uh, I just really like it for that and I, I really like that it it takes all the guesswork out of setting uh, prices for what we're doing so that we're paying ourselves a decent wage. That's really what it's all about for me. So anyway, Travis, I hope that answers your question. Uh, if you had something more specific that I didn't cover there, please feel free to shoot me an email, and I will be uh, happy to chat with you about it a little bit more one-on-one. Uh, for the rest of you guys, if you would like to learn more about me, you can check out my website at DarbySimpson.com. 
We've got a bunch of uh, free blog articles out there on all aspects of farming. Uh, you'll notice we have not had anything posted recently. It's, uh, you know, the end of the year. We're pushing 70, 80 hours a week right now, just kind of trying to get over the hump to the beginning of November. But once things uh, slow down going into November, trust me, there will be plenty of articles uh, forthcoming. Um, also, uh, for anyone who is interested, I do offer one-on-one consulting on how to start a farming enterprise for profit, uh, whether that be full-time or part-time, uh, making decisions uh, for appropriate use of your property and uh, appropriate use of how much seed money you have and just all kinds of stuff. It's all tailored to you uh, one-on-one. And also, if you're an MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on those consulting services. So please go on over and check out the blog. Feel free to sign up for the free blog email newsletter and uh, read some of the articles out there, and I hope that you'll learn something from them. And as always, Jack, thanks so much for including me in this, and hope that everyone listening has a great weekend. Take care. Great stuff from Darby. Here's here's my one ad. Um, I think people that are beginning to produce with smaller farms, selling direct-to-consumer, direct-to-restaurants, and things like that, instead of selling through the distribution chain, Using things like Excel and other methods of determining budgeting and pricing, etc., are causing what I consider to be a very positive, massive paradigm shift in farming and how prices for farm products are derived. The paradigm that's been in existence for about a hundred years now has been a farmer produces a product, the market sets the price of the product. The farmer takes the price they're given, period, the end, infinity, done. So if you're raising pigs and the price of live weight pigs at the sale barn is X, that's what you get. Um, well, these these producers like Darby, what we're doing here personally on Nine Mile Farm with duck eggs, and we're, we're about to add quail eggs to this and what have you, it, it, it requires a paradigm shift. Because the product that's being produced is not a mass market product. It's not designed for the mass market product. And I don't give a damn what the mass market product price is other than what effect it does have on the actual market for my product. So it is natural that a person goes, well, I can buy uh, chicken eggs at the grocery store for three bucks. Okay, fine. Let's start out with just going up to, you know, organic cage-free birds. What are you going to pay then? Well, six bucks. My seven fifty for duck eggs that you can't buy at the store doesn't sound so bad anymore, does it? So there is that in there. But, you know, we, where do we come up with what's a fair price? We have to look at what is the cost. And uh, this is a good time to let you guys know. I have a brand-new group uh, out on Facebook. And uh, it was in direct response. I, one of the best groups I've ever been part of on Facebook, and, and I, I'm kind of sad to have left it, is uh, the Agrarians group put together by Darren, Darren Daughtry. And uh, I really love that group for, for what it was uh, and when it started. And I don't even know how I ended up in it. I think Darren directly invited me back when it was a closed group at the very beginning as, as kind of a, someone to help establish it. But it's turned into a bunch of nonsense. Uh, it's turned into every other day I'm reading a post on there that tells me how I suck because I'm a privileged white guy. Um, I, I just don't have any place for that in the world of agriculture and making hard decisions like what, what, what Darby's talking about here. So I and some other folks have created a brand new group for discussing 
these types of issues, not just how to grow food, but how to price it, uh, called regenerative agriculture. And if you go to Facebook and search for it, there'll be a link in today's show notes. I'd love to have you come on over and join that group. Uh, we've had it up and running for all of about 16 hours, and I think we're up to 320-odd members. And what the, the reason this kind of brought this up for me, I did one of the first posts on it kind of to get things going about how do we balance not letting perfect be the enemy of the good when with doing the right thing. And it, it comes down when I start looking at the cost of feed and going from ducks to doing quail and figuring out, like, what can I afford to feed these birds? And the reality is, at least at first, until I learn the, the quail, go into a game bird ration with the feed that I use for the ducks, that's what it's going to cost me. Came in and told me, like, his, his real numbers. What does it cost him to produce birds? What does it cost him to produce eggs? Um, because... I give, I break down, and I think this is the kind of thing like small producers need to be sharing with each other. We're not really competitors, guys. So I just read to you what I shared with him. Because he talks about how, you know, how the numbers work out for his quail. And I say, Brad, uh, have you run the numbers on what I call the food debt? For instance, a duck will go 22 weeks doing nothing but eating and pooping. Call it six months. A duck gets a quarter pound of food a day. Ducklings eat less than more than come down to consumption in the growth curve. So basically when they're growing really fast, they eat more than that quarter pound at certain points in that, that thing. But hence, let's just say it's a quarter pound a day. Hence, they eat about 40 pounds of feed before they go from consumer to producer. That's about 20 bucks of feed at $7 a dozen. They need two, to lay 2.8 dozen to pay back the debt. This takes 40 more days. While they eat another 10 pounds of food, consuming another $4. Call it 10 more days and they're par. After that, they have about three good seasons ahead. They give 660 eggs on average. Uh, to do this, they'll eat 110 pounds of feed. $385 in eggs will be produced. So the profit per duck is $275. The duck meat is then worth about $25, bucks, so call it $300. That's a good return on a duck. But the feed debt does matter. Now, cold quail take only six to eight weeks to get to laying. So how do those numbers work out? These numbers are based on 240 eggs a year. It's a good average and a bit conservative. Uh, we will likely raise prices by a buck soon. The seven bucks also assumes carton cost of 50 cents. So I actually sell for 750, but the carton cost me about 50 cents. That's the kind of information we're sharing. And I think that that's the kind of information you don't know unless you run the numbers. And Excel is a great way to do that. But the stuff I just gave you there, you can just sit down with a piece of paper and figure it out. But learning to use tools like Excel or OpenOffice.com has a spreadsheet program that pretty much works the same way. Um, I think Darby and I come at this, you know, I was a sales manager, right? And I used Excel in planning forecasting, evaluating salespeople, whatever. So it was a natural tool for me to use. Darby was an engineer. So a lot of times farmers don't think that way. But I'm telling you, farming is a business. Whether you're doing backyard farming or broad acre farming, it's a business, and it needs to be treated like a business. And if you want to know more about that, come on over and join the Regenerative Agricultural Group uh, on Facebook. Again, there will be links in the show notes. And, and let's start sharing real hard data so that people can empower themselves and build freaking businesses that give them liberty. Because that's what this is about. I know sometimes people with the survival podcast or the show go, you guys talk a lot about farming. Well, it's one of the really great ways to establish a business for yourself. And I don't care if your business is in farming or freaking French toast. I mean, whatever it is, as long as it helps you live free and independent and, and, and control your own life, it's a good thing. Farming's just one really great way to do that with a lot of opportunity uh, in, a, in, a, in a time when people are beginning to question the quality of their food. Anyway, let's go on to the next one. This one is for Eric Estras. This is the one on mustard. 
So I got this question a couple weeks before the event, and I was thinking, I want to do this. I want to get like six different, you know, different colors and types of mustard seeds and do whole mustard seed mustard because I like to eat that as, as you know right now. There's a brand I buy like that, but a fermented mustard sounds awesome. Erica, how do we pull this off? Hi, Kay. Well, this is a great question, and I'll tell you, it's a unique enough question that I had to reach out to my friends at Cultures for Health, which is a website that specializes in traditional methods of fermentation, to confirm what I suspected when I first read your question. So the short answer here is that the vinegar and the sugar or honey, the sweetening, that you'll find in a typical lacto-fermented mustard recipe are primarily there for flavor, not to create an additional acetic acid fermentation process. So, Kay, I know you said you've done a variety of fermentations, but let's cover the basics for any folks listening who might be a little unclear as to what we're talking about. As I've discussed pretty extensively on the Survival Podcast, lacto-fermentation relies on lactic acid bacteria to convert carbohydrates into lactic acid. This lactic acid pushes the pH of your product down, thereby preserving it. It's kind of like traditional pickling method. So this is the process that turns milk into yogurt or cucumbers into traditional crock pickles. And this process takes place generally at room temperature and as far away from oxygen as you can manage. The lactic acid bacteria that uh, do this process for us are saline tolerant, but are much more dominant in an anaerobic or oxygen-free environment. So we keep these little bacterias away from oxygen. Now, acetic acid fermentation is a different process altogether. It utilizes different bacteria called, as you might guess, the acetic acid bacteria. And what this family of bacteria is really great at is turning ethanol, which is the kind of alcohol that if you enjoy a beer or a glass of wine or a cocktail every once in a while, that that's the kind of alcohol that we drink, right? Um, as opposed to like rubbing alcohol or something like that. So the acetic acid bacteria turn ethanol into acetic acid. And if you're a canner, you may recognize acetic acid as the essential acidifying component of vinegar. For all practical purposes, acetic acid is the acid that we think of as vinegar. Now, vinegar itself is actually a two-step ferment. So the first step is yeast ferment sugary liquids like, say, grape juice into liquids that contain ethanol like wine. So you have grape juice to wine. And then the second step is these acetic acid bacteria ferment the alcohol into acetic acid. So wine to vinegar. Now, these acetic acid bacteria that do make that tangy, delicious vinegar are aerobic, which means they really need that oxygen, and they perform best at very warm temperatures, not the room temperatures that we generally want to encourage for our lactic acid bacteria. So the environment needed for acetic acid fermentation is completely different than the environment you need for lactic acid fermentation. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say that you're just not going to be able to create one single environment that will promote both lactic acid fermentation and acetic acid fermentation at the same time. 
Now, when we look at lacto-fermented mustard recipes in particular, there's typically a starter culture of whey or something similar to jumpstart that lactic acid fermentation. And this is very typical with thick condiments where rapid fermentation is desired and the length of fermentation tends to be quite short, often a matter of, you know, 48 hours is pretty typical. Now, the vinegar added to these lacto-fermented mustard recipes will lower the initial starting acidity. And that actually does go some way to making the mustard less hospitable to yeast and spoilage organisms right at the beginning when the lactic acid bacteria are just starting to get that fermentation foothold. But the vinegar itself doesn't really add anything to the fermentation process that's taking place because, again, the conditions in that mustard recipe that we're talking about are designed to encourage the lactic acid bacteria, not the acetic acid bacteria. So what it comes down to is the primary reason that vinegar and some form of sugar like honey or maple syrup are added to these mustard recipes are for flavor. Now, I confirmed with the experts at Cultures for Health that their recipe for lacto-fermented mustard, which does call for both raw apple cider vinegar and a sweetening component, would be completely fine to ferment without this added vinegar. So really, that's your answer. Better flavor, not better fermentation. So, okay, I hope this helps clear up a little bit of your question about dual fermentation in condiment and mustard recipes. Guys, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life. Come say hi anytime at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. And if you like the kind of stuff I talk about on the Survival Podcast, you might want to check out my brand new book, The Hands-On Home. It is available now wherever books are sold, and it is getting great reviews on Amazon. Thank you all who've already bought it for your support. It means the world to me. And thank you, Jack, for making this whole thing possible. Thank you, TSP community. I will talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Bye. So I'm going to have to re-listen to that one. But what it sounds to me like is the best thing to do is go ahead and make you, make a, make a your seeds go ahead and, and ferment with a lactic acid ferment and then use just a good quality natural vinegar to add flavor to it. That that That's what it sounds like. I I'm going to listen to that one one more time to make sure that's the case, and then I'm going to give it a try. Uh, I think that might be a really uh, a really cool thing to do. Anyway, our next question is for uh, Doc Bones. This is a really interesting one. It is, uh, what would be better for a hunting first aid kit, a compression-style Israeli bandage or some sort of hemostatic agent like quick clot? Uh, Doc Bones, can you help us out with this one? Hi, this is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 articles on medical preparedness for any disaster. Along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, we're the authors of the number one Amazon bestseller in safety first aid, disaster relief, and survival skills, the Survival Medicine Handbook. This week's question comes from Carlton. He asks, which would be better for a hunting first aid kit? A compression-style Israeli bandage or some sort of hemostatic agent like quick clot? Is it worth carrying something additional for a sucking chest wound too? The answer, Carlton, is that you want both of these in your medical kit. Mishaps can occur while hunting and having an Israeli battle dressing and a hemostatic agent could possibly save a life on the trail. First, let's talk about the Israeli battle dressing. 
The Israeli battle dressing, also known as the emergency bandage in the United States, was first developed by the Israeli combat medic Bernard Bar-Natan to allow medics to apply compression to a bleeding wound. This freed them to deal with other injuries on the casualty or to attend to others while having reasonable confidence that the wound would remain stabilized. The Israeli battle dressing was successfully employed during Operation Iraqi Freedom, as well as the NATO peacekeeping mission in Bosnia and other conflicts. It's very lightweight, and it comes vacuum-packed in 4, 6, and 8-inch widths. The emergency bandage is a sterile elastic wrap with a dressing pad sewn in. The bandage has a built-in pressure bar, which allows the medic to twist the bandage around the wound once, and then change the direction of the bandage, wrapping it around the wound to create pressure. A closure bar at the end of the bandage allows you to clip it neatly closed. Now to apply extra pressure on the wound, the wrap is twisted each turn on top of the pressure bar. The Israeli bandage can even serve as a type of tourniquet if the closure bar is tucked into a fold of the wrap and then twisted. The company claims that up to 30 pounds of pressure may be applied in this fashion. The Israeli battle dressing is also useful to stabilize a commercially made splint, or in austere settings, sticks or boards on both sides of a fracture or severe sprain. There are a series of wrapping techniques which you'll find demonstrated on YouTube in various sites. Just search Israeli battle dressing or the emergency bandage. Hemostatic agents are powders, granules, powder-impregnated gauze with the ability to stop even severe bleeding when used with direct compression. The most well-known brand is called Quicklot, but my preference is a product called Cellox, produced in Great Britain. Unlike Quicklot, which is made from kaolin, the original ingredient in kaopectate, Cellox is made of chitazan, processed from the shells of shrimp and other crustaceans. Cellox can clot blood even in patients on blood thinners like Coumadin, Quicklot can't. This is how effective Cellox is. A listener of ours is a purchasing agent for the U.S. Navy. In a recent experiment, they anesthetized a pig and then shot it in the femoral artery. As you can imagine, this caused a great deal of bleeding. They used cellox on the wound and applied compression, stopping the bleeding in less than three minutes. Then they shot the pig's other femoral artery, took the old cellox dressing out from the previous wound, and used it successfully to stop bleeding in the second, without restarting the hemorrhage in the original wound. The Cellox manufacturer claims that, although it is made from crustacean shells, the Cellox manufacturer claims that, although it's made from crustacean shells, the product doesn't cause reactions in those allergic to seafood. Chest seals are useful to deal with issues relating to chest wounds, especially those that puncture the lungs. We'll talk about the ramification of gunshot wounds to the chest in future episodes, but essentially, chest seals can be commercially made like the Fox Seal or Hyphen brands, or it can be improvised with a plastic bag placed over the wound and taped on three sides only. This allows air trapped in the lung cavity to escape, but not to enter the wound, causing improved lung inflation and thus oxygen intake. Having both Cellox and the Israeli battle dressing adds two compact products that together weigh no more than a few ounces. They give you the ability to deal with a significant injury quickly and effectively without adding a lot of weight to your pack. The likelihood of a chest wound is pretty small, but a chest seal adds almost no weight to your backpack as well. It's not a bad idea. This is Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. 
see, now that's why he's an expert, because he breaks it all down for you in a way that you can understand so you can actually make a determination for yourself what is best for you and your needs. And I think that's awesome, and that's why I'm really glad to have Doc Bones and Nurse Amy as part of the expert council, along with having them being great friends in our lives. Anyway, next question is actually for Chef Keith Snow. This one is an interesting one, too, I think. Uh, this is uh, from Richard. Richard says, can you explain some techniques and processes? For, I'm sorry, wrong one. Um, I know basically how to season a cast iron pan, but can you also do the same thing with stainless steel? And Richard goes on to talk about having some issues cooking with stainless steel cookware. So, Chef Keith, uh, there's a lot of great stainless steel cookware out there. How do we get the most out of it so we can do a good job uh, preparing meals, especially when we do all this hard work to make sure we're producing great food? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Richard's question basically about um, stainless steel cookware and can it be seasoned and how do you do it? Now, for those of you that don't uh, spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff, let's do that for a moment. So what exactly is uh, a nonstick pan? Well, basically, if you look at the surface of a pan, whether it be cast iron, whether it be aluminum, whether it be stainless steel, under a microscope, you're going to see it looks like a flat surface, but when you mic uh, when you uh, blow it up under a microscope, you're going to see a very jagged surface with lots of nooks and crannies and holes. And this is why foods like fish and eggs, things like that, want to stick. Um, into those pans because they get stuck in those little nooks and crannies and they burn and stick and you have a giant mess on your hands. So why and how does non-stick work? Well, the reason it works is because non-stick uh, material is extremely slippery, very, very slippery. And uh, f for reference, it was invented in 1938 by a research chemist, Roy Plunkett, who used to work for the DuPont Corporation, and he was messing around with the refrigerant Freon. And during one of his experiments, he was freezing and compressing tetrafluoroethylene, a colorless, odorless gas, and what happened was he wound up with a white, waxy solid. They then named that PTFE, and they figured out a way to embed it on top of pans and waffle makers and all types of stuff, which is the, the leading sales of these uh, pots and pans in the United States are the nonstick variety. Now, there's lots of information about the safety of those particular types of coatings, um, but we don't have to worry about that because we can use something that's completely natural. Now, what Teflon and DuPont, what they did was they figured out a way to take a substance and fill in those nooks and crannies and those jagged edges in the bottom of a pan, making it slippery and therefore non-stick. What they didn't account for was some of the uh, off-gassing and things like that that are possible when you're using those nasty chemicals. Now, let's say you've got a stainless steel pan. First of all, if you're getting it right from the store, um, you want to wash it carefully with warm soapy water. Then you want to dry it off. You want to make sure it's good and clean. If you have an existing pan, like a lot of you do, and it may not look so clean, that's probably because it really isn't so clean. I've seen folks that cook in these pans and they're not seasoned properly and food burns on there. I mean, unless you've got your glasses on, you're really looking 
Um, that stuff needs to come off of there. So before you get started, I'm going to assume um, most of you probably have existing stainless steel cookware. Now take that cookware. First thing I would do is just put a little warm water and a bunch of um, salt. Salt, after all, is a rock. So it's hard, right? It's, it's abrasive. Then get in there with one of those green scrubbers and scrub the living heck out of that pan, getting all the little brown and discolored bits off of it. Um, depending upon how clean you get it, if it doesn't look too clean after that, you may want to go with something like um, Barkeeper's Helper or even Ajax, you know, the powdered stuff. But you want that thing to be as clean as possible with as much grit and grime off the bottom of that pan. Once you do that and you really want to rinse it and wash it again with soapy water to get any of those uh, chemicals and stuff off of there, dry the pan off, put it over medium heat, maybe medium high, but definitely on the upper end of medium, and let it warm up for three or four minutes. Then put in about a tablespoon, heaping tablespoon of coconut oil. It doesn't matter if it's virgin, ex-virgin, just coconut oil. Now swirl that coconut oil all the way around, tipping the pan on its side, making sure that the rim and the sides of the um, pan get coated in the oil all along the bottom, and then just leave it on there and let that thing start to smoke. And after a while, you're going to start, and that's got a pretty high smoke point, but let it go until you start to see it smoking and it gets very hot. Now, you're not going to use this oil, so don't worry about it. After it starts to smoke for a minute or two, and you definitely want to use your ventilation, um, turn off the pan, just leave it right on the burner and let it cool completely off. Um, once it's cool enough to handle and you can touch the sides of it without burning your hand and uh, be careful about that. Once it's completely cool, pour out the oil and then take a clean paper towel and just you know, clean it up, rub, rub any oil that's in there around the pan, turn the paper towel over and clean it up. Now you have a nonstick pan. So the next time you're getting ready to cook something like eggs, heat the pan up, put in your eggs. You really don't even need any butter and oil or anything like that because it should be very nonstick. And what's going to kill that surface is if you get done cooking and then you put Dawn liquid or you know, regular dish detergent, by all means, don't put it in the dishwasher. That's the quickest way to ruin your cookware. But if you then scrub it out with soapy water, things like Dawn and other dish soaps, they get rid of oil and grease. They're, they're designed to break it up. That's why they use it when birds get coated with uh, oil from a from an oil spill. They usually take something like Dawn liquid and they give the bird a bath with it because it really strips away oils and grease and all that. It's going to do the same thing to your stainless steel pan that you just worked hard to build that coating up in there. That's all you did is you put in oil and it filled in those holes. You kind of almost burn it in there and then you turn it off and you've got a slippery surface. So just remember that if you start scrubbing in there really hard and adding soap, you're taking away the nonstick. The best thing to do is while the pan is slightly warm, is just take um, a paper towel and um, just wipe it out. Now, there are some limitations to this. If, if the thing is completely filthy and you can't, uh, you can't use, you know, usually you can just use some warm water and a paper towel, but you get the idea. You've created a surface in there, and then there's no reason you can't do that again. You can reseason it over and over. And this is how uh, when you go into a diner and they cook eggs and you watch those guys on those steel griddles, that's all those things are, steel. Um, sometimes you'll see one that's cast iron, and this works the same theory for, for um, seasoning cast iron, but those steel um, 
you know, flat tops. You watch them put eggs on there and they're completely nonstick. And that's because it's, it's seasoned like that. They burn oil on it and then they scrape it off and they've got a good nonstick surface. Now it's the same thing if you go into a place like Cabela's or Sportsman's Warehouse, go over to where they have the cookware and a company called Lodge. They make uh, cast iron, but they also make really great steel, just pure steel pans. Now, those are excellent in the kitchen, and you season those the same way I just described, and they're really great. They transfer heat super well. Highly recommend those. So that is basically it, Richard. I hope this helps. Um, remember, you need to start with a very clean surface because you can't non-stickerize something that's kind of dirty. So make sure it's clean. And to all you out there in TSP land, I want to thank you so much for supporting my pasta sauce. I know you hear me talk about it at nauseum week after week. It's been a long process to get this launched onto Amazon. And uh, a lot of you have actually bought the product. And those of you that have, and if you have not gone back and given a review, I would greatly appreciate you do that. Uh, but you can find the Thoughtful Harvest sauces over on Amazon. Thank you to everybody, and I hope you all have a terrific weekend. Jack? Take care, man. You know, I've, I've almost completely gone away from stainless steel to uh, cast iron because of having trouble with getting cast iron to cook well for me, and I've never quite tried what I was just told to do, so I'll give that a shot. And that's what we try to bring you here is ways that you can make better use of what you already have. Most of us do have stainless steel pans to cook with. And a little coconut oil and a little bit of seasoning, and we should be able to do a better job. Thank you for that one, Keith. And let's move on to a question for Tim Glantz from Old Grouch's Military Surplus. This question comes in from, let's see, Adam in North Carolina. I'm looking at buying some metal gas cans. Can you give me the pros and cons of choosing between jerry cans and the NATO ones? So what say you, Tim? Uh, if you're picking between those two, what do you consider and uh, what do you think is best? Hi, Jack, and everybody out there in TSP land. Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with some information on jerry cans. Uh, the term jerry can originates because the Germans were the first to develop the can in the shape we, we know it as uh, now with the handles on the top. Uh, the U.S. quickly followed, and the difference is the U.S. has the type most of you have probably seen with the screw top on it. Uh, that originated in 1941 and is still basically used today, although the cans the military buys now are made by made in plastic by a company out of Canada called Scepter. The Germans, however, had a flip-top style opening, and uh, most every country other than the U.S. recognized immediately that that was a superior design. Uh, the British in World War II converted theirs to uh, be like that, and after World War II, Almost every country, aside from the U.S., adopted that style. That style is commonly called the NATO jerry can because U.S. troops always saw NATO countries using it. But in reality, uh, back on the other side of the Iron Curtain, the Soviets and everybody else were using them also. As to which one is better, uh, I prefer the NATO can. The reason is it is a cam top seal. You flip it down, you latch it, it's sealed. As long as you haven't bent that top or worn the gasket out, you know it's sealed. With a screw on top, you can never be 100% sure. You know, you, you can tighten and tighten and tighten. It can loosen. And you reach the point where you have to use tools to tighten it. Uh, the U.S. one usually has some ears sticking up where you can stick any kind of a flat bar through it. But that can be a real pain. And if you've tightened it and walked away from it a long time and it's built up pressure, or if you get a little corrosion on the threads, it can be a real bear to open. The NATO cans don't suffer from any of that. Their one weakness is that if people don't know what they're doing, 
when they open the flip top, it drops down a little bit so you can pour straight from it and you have to lift up before you go to close. And people will go to close, they'll feel resistance instead of trying to figure out and lift it up, they will just bend the actual lid. Then you have to spend a little time rebending it to get the right angle so your gasket seals. And when it comes to nozzles, you're going to have the same thing. A screw-in nozzle, you know, you have to worry about getting it tight enough and not leaking. A cam-on style nozzle like the NATO uses, as long as everything you're using is in spec, it's on, it's much quicker, and you're much more sure of the connection. As far as availability, buy what you can find. Uh, it is illegal to manufacture, import, or wholesale either style of can in this country right now. It started in California with the, what they call CARB, California Air Resources Board, and it moved from there uh, to the nationwide where they said all gas cans or fuel cans have to have these stupid spring-loaded nozzles that you have to push down or pull back or anything else in order for fuel to flow, you know, the kind that take three hands to operate and result in you spilling more fuel than you get into anything because they said it's more environmentally friendly. As a result, it's harder to get cans. You'll see a lot of cans coming in marked not for fuel use or marked as oil cans or for storage of non-fuel hydrocarbons. They're all perfectly fine and safe. You know, in every other country of the world, they're used for storing fuel. But in this country, you can import them and sell them as fuel cans. We get some in sometimes, of course, and sell them for non-fuel use. But I haven't been able to source any for about the last six to eight months, so it's been tough to get them. If you can find them, uh, definitely grab some. They're well worth it. But a word of warning. There are Chinese copies of the NATO cans on the market, and they are pure junk. Uh, and most places selling them online or mail order will not tell you they're Chinese. They just say NATO style, NATO type, or just NATO. The Chinese are usually easy to distinguish. If you got two of them side by side, it stands out. I mean, the quality of the craftsmanship is, is glaring, and the Chinese can is about a pound lighter because they're using uh, thinner sheet metal. If you look at the cans, there's a seam all the way around the edge where they're welded together. In the proper NATO can, they recessed the area of the weld, and then the, seam, the weld and the seam comes back out where it's welded, so it presents a flush appearance on the side. The Chinese couldn't be bothered to, you know, to take that much effort, so there's a raised seam all the way around the edge on them. The Chinese usually have an otter color paint, and instead of putting the proper fuel-resistant epoxy that's almost always red on the inside, they just spray some paint, so sometimes you'll see their green cans with green paint on the inside. And the minute you put gasoline in it and store it for a while, your gasoline turns green, there's no sealant on the inside, and they start rusting. If it's got a safety pin in it, most of the Chinese ones will have a two-piece with a key ring looking set up uh, instead of a one-piece bent one. And if you look at the spot welds on them, you'll notice the Chinese, the spot welds that hold the handle on are you know, tiny spot welds, whereas the real NATO cans use an actual weld. Uh, I sent Jack a link to the show notes. Uh, I actually put, the, put a web page up on my website with a picture of both styles of cans. So you can look at it and tell the difference before you buy any, if you see any out there to buy. So if you can find good, you know, European-made NATO cans, or if you can find good surplus NATO cans, I've had Czech ones, I've had Russian ones and some others, but they've just dried up at the moment, definitely grab them if you can. But, you know, if you can find good 
uh, U.S. cans with a screw top, hey, you know, look at those too. But be warned, you're probably not going to find a nozzle. What I use when I'm using the U.S. cans is uh, something called the uh, uh, Speedy Siphon, or it's a bunch of other names for them. And it's basically just a uh, rubber tube, clear plastic tube, that has a fitting on the end with a glass ball and a spring, and it's usually a copper fitting. You just drop the one end into the uh, can you want to empty from, jiggle it, and it'll start siphoning out. And all you have to do is have the can higher than the uh, uh, thing you're fueling, your vehicle or your generator or whatever. And I advise everybody, always you know, keep one of those in your vehicle and in your kit anyway because you never know when you might be using or taking fuel out of something other than the standard can you've got. So you know, those will help you make use of cans if you don't have the proper nozzles. Hope that helps, and uh, definitely check out the pictures I've got up there on the website. Even if you're not looking to buy cans right now, because you might be at a show and come across a deal, and uh, or you know at a yard sale or anything else, and this will let you say, "Hey, okay, I know what I'm looking at here." Have a good day, and thanks for the show, Jack. Great stuff from Tim, and uh, again another example of being fully informed about the the marketplace that we're in when it comes to making decisions for preparedness and, and daily living. Um, let's go ahead and have a question now for Michael Jordan. This is actually a double. Uh, Michael was able to combine these two questions into a single one. Uh, the first question is about how much buffer to put around beehives so that we're not always pissing the hives off when we're doing things like running a tractor. And the next one is about moving bees, uh, hives across long distance and how we do that. So, Michael... Uh, that's a pretty uh, complicated one, but you can handle them both in one because you are the bee whisperer. What say you? How do we deal with these issues? I have uh, two questions uh, from two different people that I'm going to reply to both of them. Question one is from Jason. He was wondering how much of a buffer should be around his hive. Information, the area I want to place the hive is near a neighbor's a place that hays his field. I don't want to get stung or him to get stung when he mows. So what is a far safe distance that won't aggravate the bees from when he's passing with the tractor? And question two is from Connecticut. How do I move my bees long distance, and what is the best way to do this? Information, I currently live in Connecticut. Uh, in the next two to three years, I'll be moving south about 12-hour drive. Is it better to sell my bees and start over? Uh, what's 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 the best time of year to do this? Well, thank you, Jason. And the question for Connecticut here on the TSP uh, Expert Council. I appreciate the questions. The buffer around a working hive is always 20 to 30 feet. Within that space, you should always wear a veil, if not a full beekeeper's outfit. If the bees are real hot, meaning they're hard to work with, aggressive, stinging, rambling, randomly, uh, kill off the queen and requeen. Uh, get that mean dictator out of the hive and get a queen in there that is more secure on running a colony. Unsure of your bees and the debris that are hitting the hive that he cuts, you can always move the hive back away from the neighbor when he comes uh, to cut, uh, replacing it the next day or a few days after. What you do is going in at 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and duct taping off the hive openings, placing a ratchet strap around the hive, and the lids of the boxes don't come apart when moving. Remember, bees are union workers, so they only work daylight hours, coming home at night to keep the hive warm. Move the hives at night. That way the bees are 90% all in the hive. When done, make sure the hive is secure and closed completely off. B 
before you move it to the new location. I use just usually screen door screening, duct tape, and staples most of the time with my ratchet strap. Always have your site prepped before moving your hive. You don't want to show up there and not have a place to put it at midnight, not seeing after working a hard day. <laughs> so always have your site ready before you move your bees. Um, before you leave the bees, you want to place it on the location you're going, taking off the ratchet strap and opening all the duct tapes and doorways before you leave the site that night. That way, if you don't get back to the bees early in the morning, uh, they can just come right out and start doing their orientation flights and uh, getting everything ready to go. Uh, I think if you move your bees away from your fields where they're hanging and then move them back, your neighbor probably won't even know that the bees are getting uh, free feed from his side of the fence. And this also uh, works if moving hives any place. Most commercial beekeepers move their hives from state to state for pollination. The longer the trip, the more you have to feed and water the girls. Placing inner frame feeders and topping off the hives uh, works the best. Um, people usually just put a lot of inner feeders in them, throw big netting on the trucks, and then drive down the road. So, you know, I, I usually, like I said, tape all my entranceways with screen doors and stuff. That way, uh, the screening from screen doors, that way the bees can't come out at me. And it makes it a good air flow still in the hive for them. But when you're moving longer distance, uh, you might want to place that inner feeder in or a couple frames of honey. And then you can move them up to three days without checking them. They're going to get food supply. They're going to be able to go in there. But after three days, you got to let them out to go to the bathroom, get some air, and take care of their business, too, and get water. So you have that time period that you can work with. But that's how you uh, isolate and uh, move your bees. That The safest distance is, is about 20 to 30 feet away. Africanized bees, if you get within that 30 feet, they'll start tagging you. Uh, hot bees are the same way, so I just try to keep them 30 feet away. And if you're moving your beehives, prep everything in advance before you move them. Make sure they have proper feed and water. Tape them off, ratchet them down, get them on the truck, and haul butt. If the police officer pulls you over, I'll have him take a look in the back, see what you're transporting. Uh, you probably won't get a ticket, and you might even make a honey cell while you're there. Uh, this should help both of you out on locations of your hives and how to move them. Thank you for your emails on uh, the questions. I appreciate them. And I also want to thank all the emails on the BDC course that Permaiso has put out. Um, yes, it is hard to get stung when the bees are used to you. So, yes, yeah, standing there in the videos next to the hive is easy. Uh, Josiah didn't even get stung the whole time this summer when he was here filming. So John worked the bees more, and they will know you. Believe it or not, studies have shown that bees do uh, actually facial recognition, that painting your hives, they actually can see their hive, their home. So, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty intelligent when it comes to remembering what they're doing. That's why flight orientations work so well for them, and they take good direction. So just want to let you know, facial recognition by bees. So work with them. Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer from a bee-friendly company telling you to get your honey from a local keeper that you respect. Support Cottage Sales. Help your fellow man, for we all need a little help sometime. Looking forward for more questions and seeing you guys at Nine Mile Farm in November. I don't think there's a man that loves bees more than Michael Jordan. I really don't. I think that, that 
Um, you know, is he the foremost bee expert in the world? I think that's debatable. That you know, it'd be hard to figure out who is. It's such a diverse field, honestly. But is there a person that actually loves bees more than Michael? I I don't really think there is, man. He's just an awesome, awesome guy, guy and a hell of a human being. Uh, next question is for Gary Collins, and I'm glad I have a uh, expert council member to take this one because if this question was for me. I wouldn't even touch this one with a 10-foot pole. Uh, I would be completely and totally uncomfortable trying to answer this one. Uh, here it is. Gary, are there any special considerations when trying to adopt a paleoprimal lifestyle after having gastric bypass surgery? And this one is from Jesse out in California. Uh, Gary, better you than me on this one. What say you on this very um, complex question? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And we have a question about trying to follow the paleo diet uh, for someone who's had gastric bypass surgery. Very, very good question. Very interesting question. Now, for someone who's had gastric bypass surgery, there's many, many different forms of it. Um, the basic is a smaller stomach or pouch. And then they bypass a, a portion of your small intestine. And I think sometimes they put another pouch or stuff. There's so many versions today. I, I don't want to get into it. I'll confuse myself along as you. But that's the, the basic concept is having a smaller stomach and then skipping a, a portion of the digestive process where you would assimilate those foods and nutrients and absorb them and skipping that in order to reduce your calories and your nutrient intake. That's the whole kind of premise behind it. Now, this individual has also had their, their gallbladder removed and their, your gallbladder produces bile salts and these bile salts are what break down fat. So... The reason most obese people have their gallbladder removed is because a doctor will call you say you have a sluggish or inactive gallbladder. Well, in obese people, because they consume primarily either highly processed fats such as trans fats, hydrogenated fats, which are synthetic fats, and then also a huge load of carbohydrates. Well, when you do that, you're, you're the way the way your gallbladder works is it's kind of use it or lose it. It has to be active and it can literally slow down and stop working if you're not consuming proper amounts of fat. I've dealt with this in people I've worked with. It, it is very common and the solution is basically to remove your gallbladder. And it does work for people, but it is not the solution. You can actually get your gallbladder to work again and work properly. It just takes time, and it's that slow evolution of proper exercise, you know, uh, sleep, healthy mindset, and obviously proper nutrition. That is the key. Even with that, though, it takes a while. But we can't we can't fix that. This person has had their gallbladder removed. They've had the gastric bypass. And trying to do uh, paleo is going to be very difficult because um, what paleo is is more protein in the form of animal flesh and animal healthy animal fats. Well, what's the slowest to digest is fat, then protein, then carbohydrates. Now, the, the, this individual has also ran into a problem that it worked in the beginning, the gastric bypass surgery, but they lost the initial weight then they plateaued and now they're starting to gain the weight. And there's a, a very simple physiological reason behind this. Gastric bypass is starvation. It is 
starving you to death, basically. That's why you have to, if you have the surgery, you have to have B12 shots, other supplemental shots. You have to take specific supplements um, because you, your body, you're skipping this digestive process. You're not getting enough nutrition and what nutrition you are getting, you're not getting it into your, into your bloodstream and into your body to be able to utilize it. Like I said, you're, you're literally starving to death. So with that, your body adapts. And what happens is after that initial calorie restriction, this is just like a calorie restrictive diet. There is no difference. It's just extreme reduction because the, the pouch or stomach is so small now. There's only a very little amount of food you can eat. Now, with that, your, your thyroid's going to go, okay, I'm screeching to a halt, hunker down mode. Your metabolism is going to slow way, way, way down. You basically go into survival mode. That's what happens. So your everything slows down. Now you start to gain the weight back again because your body, again, starvation mode, it's just trying to survive. So that's why you have plateaued out and that's why you are starting to gain the weight again. Now, can you do paleo with this surgery? It's going to be very, very difficult. I'm not going to candy coat it. Um, you know, I, the only way I can see it working, you want to be real careful with the fat consumption because if you eat a lot of protein and fat with this surgery, well, it's going to put a lot more pressure on that, on your stomach and your digestive system as far as that. And it's going to start to push that up. That's why people, you'll see them, they'll, I've watched people have had this surgery and they get real uncomfortable if they eat too much. Well, it's pushing that food back up your esophagus and putting pressure on your lower, uh, uh, esophageal sphincter, which is the valve between your, your, your stomach and, uh, and, uh, your esophagus there, um, depending on how they do, there's, like I said, there's so many different ways they can do this and doctors have their own methods, but that's very common. Now I would recommend if you're going to do it, you're going to have to really spread these meals out. I mean, or as far as you're going to have to eat a lot of tiny meals. So I, I would guess eight to 10 meals. I really would. Just because the protein and fat is going to be so much slower digesting and you're going to fill up that much quicker because it's more calorie dense and energy dense, nutrient dense. Yeah, I don't see it working any other way. And uh, hopefully it'll speed, you'll be able to speed up your metabolism again too. But I don't know. I, I don't see it working a whole lot. Um, it's a tough situation. And with your gut bacteria, you had a question whether you're having an issue with gut bacteria since some of your digestive system, your small intestine is kind of skipped. Yes. Um, how much? I don't know. Um, that's a real individual question. I mean, there's so many things going on in your body now. Very individualistic as far as how you're processing food, what your gut bacteria is like. And there's just so many things, moving parts in that. But will it affect your gut bacteria? Yes. Would a probiotic be helpful? Maybe. But I don't know. I really don't because you're not skipping your colon, which your colon is where most of your your uh, gut bacteria reside. And that's your second stomach. So, I mean, you still, if it gets there, you can still assimilate the foods, but you are skipping a major step in the small intestine. Um, you know, I do not recommend this surgery. I've had people approach me who are obese and I've, we've talked about it. It's, and it's not this individual's fault. They did this several years ago. This is a... When it first came out, it was very popular. It still is very popular today. Um, but you can see the downside. It's a short-term, not a long-term fix like they, they say it is. 
your body will adapt and you put your body in starvation mode and there's a slow, well, there's a, a gap or window where it works effectively and then the reverse starts to happen. So now not only are you starving yourself to death, but now you're gaining weight and now you're still obese and now you've got a multitude of other health problems. So that's where the primal paleo lifestyle it, it comes in. And I'm glad you mentioned that, that you hadn't found this yet, you know, that you did this prior and would like to use it. And I think it is a good lifestyle to implement, you know, make sure you're getting your proper exercise as well. Um, I have a really good story. Actually, I worked with another agent at the FDA who had gastric bypass done because they were morbidly obese. I kid you not. They went and did this in Tijuana. A U.S. federal agent who knew better went to Tijuana, almost died from the surgery. Um, not funny. That part's not funny, but just mind-boggling. So if you're going to get this surgery, definitely just don't go to Mexico and go get it done on the cheap. I mean, don't do that. That's just it's making a, a, a bad problem even worse. But with that, I don't recommend it. Um, I've had, as you guys know, incredible success using the primal and paleo primal lifestyle paleo diet with people who are overweight. Many TSP members have lost hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of pounds using what Jack and I teach. Cause Jack's remember Jack found paleo, uh, years ago. Um, and that's kind of how we crossed cross paths. So I hope that helps and gives you a little more information. Again, like I said, I would just break uh, your meals up into smaller meals and give it a try and see what happens. And also, since you don't have a gallbladder and you don't have the ability to produce bile salts, you're going to have to get a digestive enzyme supplement. There's several out there. Um, there is a bovine uh, from a cow that works really well. I know people and I've had people use it. Um, I cannot remember the brand right off the top of my head, but I think there's only one manufacturer of it. But I hope that helps. And if you have any questions, hit the comment section or email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot, guys. Well, good stuff from Gary. And I'm going to back clean up today and take another gun question. I've enjoyed your gun questions, guys. And this is really uh, like right up my alley. I'm I'm more of the hunter than the tactical guy. When it comes to tactical, I believe in a good a good carbine and a good handgun and knowing how to use it, and and I'm pretty content with that. I don't try to accessorize the shit out of stuff. Um, but it, this one's about shotgun hunting, and I, I mean, I grew up where I spent a hell of a lot more time in the woods with a 22 and a 12 gauge than I did with a deer rifle because deer season was relatively short in Pennsylvania. I got into archery hunting because of longer seasons. There was a lot of times I wasn't even out in deer uh, rifle season for deer because I had taken my deer quota in, in archery season. So um, shotguns are right up my alley. I love hunting squirrels, love hunting rough grouse. I can't, get, I can't do the rough grouse thing down here. Uh, ducks and woodcock. and I just love shotguns. I really do. And I think that you know, rifle shooting is a skill. I believe the shotgun. When you get good with a shotgun, it's an art. It, 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 there's like with a rifle, you can clearly explain every bit of the technical skill that you you use with a rifle until you start handling a rifle like it's a shotgun. And at that point, you can kind of explain it, but it really doesn't help. And with a shotgun, that becomes very very natural very very quickly. Um, so I love shotguns, and so I love this question. It says, Jack, what is the right shotgun for a new hunter? 
Looking into getting into hunting, I went to the class and got my license. I can hunt in the conservation land next to my property with a shotgun. I'm looking for something I can use for small game to start off with, like squirrels, and that will allow me to grow into hunting bigger game like turkeys and deer. I probably won't be hunting ducks anytime soon. I was looking at a Remington 870, but I'm not sure which barrel length would be best. Thanks, Roy. Um, here's my thoughts on this. I mean, you cannot go wrong with the 870 here. Uh, you really can't. And if I was going to say this is going to be a shotgun you're going to own for the rest of your life, I would either steer you toward the 870 or the Remington Model 1100. Winchester makes a good semi-auto and a good pump gun as well, uh, but Remington has so much options as far as things to adapt at a lower cost to do things like later maybe a smooth bore slug barrel with rifled sights to hunt deer with or something like that. Uh, or a cantilevered for scope uh, slug barrel or what have you. And there's a lot more available. So I love the Remington, whether it's 1100 or 870. In that world, you got a big difference in price. A brand new, beautiful, out of the box, uh, rate seven, Remington 870 Wingmaster is going to run you about 800 bucks retail. And you're, you know, the 1100s that you would look at would be like the, the, the classic sportsman, 12, 1300 bucks brand new. But that's another street prices, right? They're, you're, you can pick up a nice brand new 870 Wingmaster in the $600 range and the, 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 the 1100 in around the $900 to $950 range. Brand new. And there's no reason to buy a new one. There, there just isn't. Especially if there's gun uh, gun shows where you are, and you get in where there's 200 people in there with tables of guns, and they get competitive with each other, you can find a nice used one that that, that functions well. And don't if it's got scratches on it stuff. If you're gonna use this as a hunting gun, it's gonna freaking have scratches on it. It's gonna get dinged up. Might as well get one that's already got a few. As long as there's nothing that damages the functionality of it, you might as well get one that's already dinged up. Then you won't worry about it. You'll take it out and hunt with it the way it's designed to be used. This is not, you know, a gun for for shooting skeet with a bunch of upper crusty friends, uh, where where the gun is just, you know, you know, it comes out of the case, it gets used, it gets cleaned, and it goes back in the case, and it never sees a bramble or a, a, a blowdown or anything like that. This is a hunting gun. So you can save a couple $300, depending on the option that you choose. Now, if you want to get really inexpensive, there's a Remington 870 Express. I own one. If this is going to be your primary hunting shotgun, I don't recommend it. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with it. It's a little bit heavier. It's just kind of a little bit ugly. Uh, but you can get them in a $300 range street price. But... I think you'd just be happier stepping up to the 870 Wingmaster. If you're going to go low cost, I'd rather you go with the, the, the 870 Express than with something like the, um, let's say the Mossberg pump or what have you as a, as a hunting gun. Cause I'll, I'll kind of get into why here in a minute, but those are your two. Here's your, here's your decision making process between the two. Is money an issue? If money's a big issue, go with the pump. It'll serve you well. It'll cost you less. Done. Okay? If, if, if you have the budget for either, then we can take a little bit more look at the performance of both. And I'm going to say go with the 12-gauge for, 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 the, for the 
breakdown that you gave me you want to do? You want to use this as a turkey gun? You want to basically uh, shoot some slugs out of it or whatever and shoot some deer with it in the future? Um, and, you know, there's an old saying, beware the man that carries one gun. And you can do all that with either of these. Uh, but the 12-gauge is going to serve you better for that. 12-gauge dove loads don't recoil much. You get into high brass loads, uh, as they call them, number six shot, good heavy loads, good squirrel load, for instance, has a little bit more recoil. When you shoot a semi-auto like the Remington 1100, a lot of that recoil is absorbed by the action of the bolt moving back and forth. So you'll have less recoil because of it, and you can follow up your shots faster. I believe that it's not so much because of how long it takes to run a pump on a shotgun, but because of the reduction in recoil, it's easier for you to stay on a target or switch to the next target in the case of shooting a double, for instance, with the semi-auto. The downside, because it's so easy to do follow-up shots, before you develop skill, you will burn through a lot more ammo and have a lot more misses. When I was a kid, a, a new shotgun shooter got handed a break-action single-shot shotgun because if you missed, it was over, and it made you think more, and you were more likely to make your shots count. There's some truth to that. So as you go from pump to semi-auto, you get that reduction in recoil. It's more like driving the, the, the Corvette than the Camaro, okay? But you can hurt yourself a lot more with the Corvette and the Camaro if you try to push it to its limits and you're not capable. Okay, And that's kind of how this is. Except you're not really going to hurt yourself. You're going to spend a lot of money on ammo and have a lot of misses. The, there, so what I'm going to add to this is I think you should go find a place where you can shoot sporting clays and get a coach because it's very difficult to become a skilled shotgun shooter on you know shooting at moving targets like birds. Uh, or squirrels jumping through trees and stuff without a coach because you won't believe you're doing what your coach tells you. Your coach is going to tell you you're picking your head up off the barrel, which means you're you're breaking your cheek weld with the stock. And as you're doing that, the stock's going down, the front of the barrel's going up, and you're shooting over your target. And you're going to say, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, and you are. Your coach is going to tell you that you're not leading your target. You're, you're behind your target when you're pulling the trigger, and you're going to say, no, I'm not, and you are. Your coach is going to tell you when you're leading your swing that you're stopping the gun instead of continuing in motion with the target, and you're going to say, no, you're not, and yes, you are. And you can't really see yourself doing this. And here's a great exercise for anybody learning to shoot wing shots with a shotgun. Have a person act as your coach. Even if they're not better than you, they can still be your coach. Stand behind you. Load the gun for you, hand you the gun, and then you're shooting at clays or what have you, moving targets. And every once in a while, have them not put around in the shotgun. You will catch yourself doing everything I just said so easily. And what will happen if you do that for a while, you go through, let's say, a, a, a full round, 25 uh, targets uh, that way, and, and maybe you, you, you didn't even shoot at five of them. Uh, because you had that little trick played on you, that little nasty trick, and there was no round in the gun, and you see what you're doing. When you go through the next round, if they're relatively easy shots, you'll probably break almost all of them. Because you will get into a flow, and you will get into doing what you're supposed to do because you'll realize what you were doing wrong. So that's a little aside there. Now, with the 1100 or the 870, the beauty of these uh, guns is that you can get them with the REM choke, which most other manufacturers have an adjustable choke. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that you start out with two chokes, two primary chokes that you're going to have in that gun. 
Uh, you're going to change out as you need to. And your go-to will be improved cylinder. It's just a little bit tighter than, 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 than uh, skeet. And it is considered uh, a little too loose by most gunners. That's because they can't shoot or they don't know any better. It gives you a nice pattern. It's going to be fine for things like squirrel. When I was a kid, the 870 did not come with adjustable choke. And my first shotgun, my first nice shotgun, was a Remington 870 Wingmaster with improved cylinder choke. I hunted everything with it. I shot wood ducks with it. I shot mallards with it. I shot grouse with it. I shot pheasants with it. And it performed flawlessly. That said, modified is the other choke that I recommend. We come into a little bit more tightness on that choke, a little bit more restriction. Our pattern's a little bit more dense. So if we're hunting later in the season for something like squirrels, where they're farther away in the trees, squirrels are tough animals. Don't think they're not. We have a little bit more density of pattern. Or if we're shooting passing shots at birds of some sort, and they're, they're a little further out, that modified choke is going to get that density of pattern to where we're going to reach out there a little bit more. But that improved cylinder is a beautiful balance point. And if I had to take a shotgun with a fixed choke where I could never change it, I would just go with improved cylinder. Now, my recommendation on barrel length is different than what is the most common barrel length and the most often suggested as a dual-purpose, all-around shotgun. Most of your shotguns you see on the store shelves, unless you specifically look for one otherwise, are going to have a 28-inch or 28-inch barrel. I prefer a 26-inch barrel. The two inches does matter uh, when you're going through woods and blowdowns and stuff. It's much easier to move that gun through actual forest and woodlands, and it does cut a little tiny bit of weight off, which by the end of the day does start to matter. So I prefer that 26-inch choke. A lot of your turkey barrels on your shotguns will run somewhere between 20 and 24 inches because you want a shorter barrel, a smaller shotgun. So when there's movement, turkeys are very big on picking up on that movement and saying there's something going on over there. That shorter shotgun is one of, you know, one of the ways we mitigate that. And also we're generally going into thicker woods and stuff like that. But there's nothing wrong with hunting turkeys with that 26 inch barrel. So if we're not quite ready to step up, to buying a new barrel, we go get ourselves a nice little screw-in full choke or extra full if we want to really put that density on that bird. And we screw that in when we're turkey hunting. And we're good to go by adding a $35 choke tube. Okay, If I want to get really specialized with turkey, I like the shorter barrels. I really do. And something like an extra full and going to uh, something like a, a full-powered magnum load number two shot or something like that for my turkeys, great. See, but now this shotgun's so flexible, we can go back to that improved cylinder or modified. You say you won't be hunting ducks, but if you ever do, we're good to go hunting ducks. We're good to go hunting geese. We can adapt just by changing out that tube. Why do they make shotguns with longer barrels? Some people think that you're going to get more velocity. 21 inches is about the optimum point for a shotgun, 12-gauge shotgun, to where anything beyond that doesn't really do anything. Okay, so the reason that people think that there's more power is they tend to shoot a little bit better because they have a longer sighting plane. Remember, with a shotgun, your eye is the rear sight and the front of the, the bead is the front sight. And you want that barrel to be flat. When you're shooting a shotgun right, 
you can hardly see anything of the barrel at all. All you see is that front bead, and it's lined up directly with your eye, and you're tracking that target. So with that longer sight plane, it's a little bit easier to keep your head down. But if you focus on good techniques, you'll have no handicap by using a 26-inch barrel, and you'll just find it to be a better all-around barrel length to do the types of things you're probably going to do as an actual hunter, not just somebody standing there breaking sporting clays or shooting skeet, where you'd want a long barrel with a tight choke, shooting skeet on you know on the way out distance skeet or something like that. That's not what we're doing here. We're out there trying to put food on the table, and this is kind of the best all around. And I would tell you the same of everything I just said is true for the 870 and the 1100. Some of the stuff just costs a little bit more as far as barrels and stuff for the 1100. All right, now, as we move into deer, there's a couple different things that we can do. With that improved cylinder choke, we can take something like a Foster-style 12-gauge slug, put it right into there, and just shoot it. And you'd be surprised at how accurate you can be out to about 50 yards with a smoothbore shotgun shooting Foster-style slugs. These are the old-style slugs like your grandfather and great-grandfather used. They called them pumpkin balls. And I'll tell you what, when you put one of these into a deer where it belongs, they go down. And with my little old 870, as a kid, I would go out and I would break cork beer bottles at 50 yards with no sights, just that rear eye is your sight, that front bead is your front sight, and you put that bead dead center of that bottle, and you squeeze that trigger off with all the dedication of a rifleman, but all of the instinct is of a shotgunner, and nine times out of ten, that bottle blows up. When you come into ranges around 25 yards, if you miss with a foster slug, you've missed because you've missed and you've not done your part. Beyond that, you start to stretch the limits of what that setup can do. So what we can then do is we can go and get ourselves one of two different barrels for this 870 or 1100. We can get a smooth bore um, slug barrel so we can keep shooting those big slugs with a set of rifled sights on it that are adjustable. And with that, we can be very accurate at 50 yards, still pretty well on the ball out to about 75 yards and keep that big, giant, 75-caliber hunk of lead that weighs an ounce and a quarter. I mean, we're talking knockdown power. Or we can get ourselves a barrel that's, that's set up with rifling in it. I don't like the rifled choke tubes. I don't think they do enough to make it worth. And we can go to what's called a Sabo round. So now we're going to go to something that's basically like a 50 caliber or 45 caliber slug that's got a nylon Sabo around it that makes it fit the shotgun barrel. And when we fire that shot, it's going to have the imparted twist of a rifle. We can buy one with a cantilever on it so we can mount a scope. And we now have a 200-yard deer rifle out of that 870 or that 1100 shotgun. There's a lot of flexibility there. We can also get a smooth bore barrel that would take a low magnification scope and go back to foster slugs. It's up to us what we want out of that. But there's probably nothing else in the world that gives us greater flexibility than a 12-gauge shotgun. And I don't want to put down Mossberg or Winchester. I mean, if you can find an old model 12 Winchester, especially a Featherlight, if you can get somebody to sell the damn thing to you, it's one of the finest guns ever made. I have a Browning A5 semi-auto 12-gauge shotgun. I love it. I love that gun. I think it's just a thing of beauty. And it's very similar in many ways to that 1100. But that square receiver... It, it, it's you know, even with being Belgian made, it's just something about that American classic of the 1100, that rounded receiver. I kind of like it a little bit better. So that's my recommendation. Stick with your 870 or 1100. 
Try to find a used one that's in good shape, but don't worry about it being beat up a little bit. Make sure you learn how to clean it, how to service it, how to maintain it. Get out and get a coach and do some good shooting. Understand your flexibility of options. Do a little bit of research, see what works well for you. Look for used uh, components like that because a lot of that stuff you can buy on GunBroker with no FFL because the only thing that's the gun is the gun itself. Barrels and choke tubes and all that stuff you can buy secondary market with you know nothing but just buying it like buying, I don't know, a pack of gum. And then learn about things like chokes and, and shot density. Learn about the different types of shot. And even consider doing some reloading because you can get the Lee Lodol. Uh, that thing, I can't remember how much it is, but it's ridiculously inexpensive. And it does a really good job of loading shotgun shells. So that will actually reduce what it costs you to go out there and practice because practice is what it's all about. Hope you enjoyed that. I sure enjoyed answering that one for you. And uh, I know I went long with it, but if you can't tell... Guys, I love shotguns and shooting them. But I'm not going to close today with a song about guns. I'm not going to close today with a song about anything that we really talked about today. What I'm actually going to close with is another song by one of my favorite songwriters and singers, Jimmy Buffett. There's a lot of people out there that don't really consider themselves fans of Jimmy Buffett, but they know a lot of his music, and it's been on the radio. Margaritaville is something that's everybody's heard. Fins is a pretty popular song. Uh, there's some other ones out there that most people have heard, and they kind of get this idea of a big old you know, fat guy in a Hawaiian shirt getting drunk and partying, and there's a lot of that in, in Jimmy Buffett's music. But he's got some incredible, incredible music, and some of it's just plain beautiful music. And it gives us the concept of contemplation. And that's what I want to play for you today. This song is called Ten Cup Chalice, and it's one of my favorite songs to listen to when I want to just chill out and relax. And with a weekend coming up, why don't we all do that this weekend at some point? Just take a break, grab that Ten Cup Chalice, fill it up with red wine, and chew on that honeysuckle vine. I want to go back to the island where the shrimp tie up to the pilot. Give me oysters and beef for dinner every day.